Honey, folks, take your Bible, if you would, and jump over to Ecclesiastes chapter number four. You find the middle of your Bible, Psalms or Proverbs, keep going one book, and you will land in the great book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I've had, I've loved the conversation. So please don't, don't misinterpret what I'm about to say. I've loved the conversation with our church family and a lot of our newer Christians. Even Brother Josh today was like, Pastor, I've been listening to the sermons and oh, the book of Ecclesiastes can be so depressing. And it's true uh, because life is as awful as Solomon says it, if this is all that life is. And uh, that's what this book uniquely is about. And that's why, again, we picked this as a, a primary kind of reminder. It's life under the sun. And we Christians have a very different life to live. We live under the son of God. We don't just live under the sun. In fact, there's some great New Testament commentary. I think we've mentioned it already uh, that Paul even says, if all we have in this life is hope in God. So I'll, I'll rephrase it this way. If in life, all, all we have right now is the hope of this life and God has given us that hope. Here's what Paul says. We are of all men most miserable. Uh, because life under the sun, as Solomon very clearly attests to, is a miserable exercise in forced labor. And that's chapter number two. And so, yeah, that's depressing. I totally get it. But to us as Christians, I've used this illustration a couple of times. It's like we're snorkeling, but we have a snorkel, right? And our head is underwater, and we're having to sit across from the table from Solomon, the, the best life critic that ever walked the planet, the wisest man ever. And we're sitting across the table from this man and he is just telling us how awful life is. That's pretty much the whole book of Ecclesiastes. But while that is and can be depressive, we're swimming with a snorkel, right? We get to breathe heaven's air while going on this experience with Solomon. And uh, think about it just like, uh, almost like a terrible roller coaster, right? You're sitting with this guy, you're stuck with him. He is telling you how bad it is. And I'm warning you because chapter four, the very beginning of chapter four, he comes out swinging. He comes out swinging some real heavy, you know, life is terrible kind of things. And so I want to remind you, to breathe deeply of heaven's air. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done this. Psychologically, it's hard to breathe underwater, right? right? For a reason, that's kind of like a survival mechanism. You shouldn't try to do that. But even with a snorkel, sometimes, if you've ever snorkeled, sometimes you even find yourself still holding your breath, even though you can breathe. Um, don't do that, okay? As we're walking through Ecclesiastes and it's life under the sun and we're deep in the depressing realities of life that Solomon is telling us that, hey, when you're away from God, this is how awful it is. And he's, he's the hard part about the book is he's right. Again, under the inspiration of God, he is right. Under his own God-given wisdom, he is right. His observations are not wrong. Though we're gonna come into one today that is, is in contrast and in conflict with a Christian's worldview, you'll see what I'm talking about in a second. So again, don't forget to breathe while your face is underwater is what I'm trying to remind you. You and I have this snorkel that goes all the way up into heaven, all the way up into the goodness of God that makes even the worst parts of life make sense. And Solomon does, no, does not have that any longer. And he doesn't, he never had it. Solomon never had it like you and I get to have it, right? Solomon could walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but you and I walk with the presence of the Holy Spirit. He goes where we go. And Solomon has forsaken his God at the point of the writing of this book. He has backslidden. He has loved many strange women and loved many strange gods. And again, the book of Proverbs written primarily by Solomon, God's wisdom, godly wisdom, man, this is how life works. And then Ecclesiastes is, this is what life looks like if you forsake God. This is, this is the life under the sun, the best it gets, as Solomon said at the end of chapter three, hey, enjoy the labor of your life because there's nothing better under the sun. Yeah, there's a lot better under the sun, right? You can enjoy the presence of God, but if there is no heaven and there is no God and you don't have that closeness with Jesus, then yeah, the best life gets is spend your money and enjoy your time. That's what Solomon says to us. So again, 
Breathe deeply of heaven's air as we dive into this book. So look at uh, verse number one. We'll just start right into it. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse number one starts with a phrase that's it's kind of familiar. We actually haven't seen this particular phrase, but we have seen this idea before. Solomon, look what he says in the first three words. He says, so I returned. Now, as you're re- if you're reading the book with a bit of an analytical mindset, you think, well, did you, when did you leave, right? You're like, what, what are you talking about? You return. Well, this, this again is something Solomon does a lot. Think about it like this. Again, I've used the illustration a couple times. You're seated at the table with Solomon. And what Solomon does, and again, this, is, this isn't exactly how the book is structured, but in my mind, it's easy to understand it. Solomon will go and he'll experience something and come back and say, hey, I tried this thing. Let me tell you how it worked, right? All of chapter two, I tried manservants and women servants. I tried music and gardens. And he comes back and he says, hey, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all empty. There's no joy out there for you. And again, the reminder of the setting of this book is that Solomon is writing from a very sick soul. Uh, and it's, I don't know if it's ever more clear in any of the coming chapters than it is in chapter four, in the first couple verses. Uh, he has forsaken his God. He's relinquished his joy and peace. He has relinquished his, just that, you know what it's like, right? As a Christian to be in the presence of God. I hope you know what that's like. I hope you know what it's like to have prayers answered. I hope you know what it's like to see God move in powerful ways. But here's the, here's the harshest reality that Solomon's under. It's easy to live without something you never had. Right? So a lost person, they can live without the presence of God. They never knew what it was like in the first place. That's like me being like, you know, it's so hard to live without a jet. Never had one. Don't know how convenient it is, right? But the people who, you know, they, you know, multimillionaires, they've got all these luxuries. It's like, I just couldn't live without my third Bentley, you know? Uh, but to the Christian, right? We don't need those things, right? I think that's a bit ridiculous. But to you and I, we know what it's like not to have a private jet, but to have access to the throne room of God. We know what it's like to have that joy and that peace in the midst of trials and suffering. Lost people don't know what it's like to lose the presence of God because they've never had the presence of God. But you've got Solomon here who knew God and spent time with God. And now there's this gaping hole that he has set out through his, his wild goose chase, you could call it, in Ecclesiastes to try to find something that can fill that void. And the best part, again, I know I'm cherry picking from the book. The best part is in Ecclesiastes 12, he does figure out what's missing. The, the last two verses of the whole books just give you the beautiful synopsis. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let us fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man, period, end of book. Solomon does figure it out. Now, does Solomon ever get back right with God? I don't know. Clinically or, or, or mentally, he understood what was missing, but he was trying to figure out how to fill it. Uh, and so Solomon sets out to chase down these things, but then he keeps returning to the reader. So again, look at the first three words in verse number one. He says, so I return. Now that same phrase is said a couple of different ways. This idea of him leaving the table and coming back. We've seen it in chapter one, two, and three. In chapter five, he'll say it this way. He says, behold, that which I have seen, So he comes back to the reader and says, I saw something. Let me tell you about it. In chapter six, he actually opens chapter six with this phrase. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and, and then he tells us what that evil is. Later on in chapter six, all this have I proved. Later on in chapter six, behold, this I have found. And so again, think about it like the wild goose chase. He gets up from the table. He goes out and he tries some new thing. Some of it's pleasurable, some of it's not, right? He tried in in chapter two, he tried wisdom, folly, and madness. He was like, I'm going to try to do it right. I'm going to try to do it wrong. And I'm just going to try to do it crazy. And he comes back. He says, it's all empty. It's all vanity. I cannot find anything to fill the God-sized gap in my heart. And so again, I'm going to warn you one final time before we jump in. Chapter four, especially the front end of it, is a bit depressive. And uh, we have a snorkel. Don't forget to breathe while your face is underwater. But let's dive in. Verse number one, he says, 
So I returned. He's back at the table. He's about to give us another observation. I returned and consider all the oppressions that are done under the sun. What a fun thing to go look at. Solomon walks out and he's like, yep. I looked out at all the injustices and all the oppression and all the subjugation in the world. That's kind of like watching cable news, isn't it? You just turn it on and you watch. What are you watching? All the oppressions of the world. Uh, and there's some, specific, some specificity to this particular oppression. But let me give you the definition of oppression. It's, it's a unique definition. It means the act of subjugating one by the use of cruelty. So it's not just people being mean to each other. It's, it's somebody, and particularly people of power in this particular verse, are oppressing other people and keeping them down. They're subjugating them and enslaving them by the use of cruelty. Cruelty. You think about like the, the dictators of the world, right? When you think of the worst, there's been a lot of dictators. There are dictators on our globe right now. But when you think of the worst dictators, you know, Genghis Khan, the Toe of the Hunt, you think of those guys, what makes them so awful is not just that they subjected people, but they used cruelty to do it. And Solomon is observing, even in his own kingdom, he's the king. And he looks out and he sees people being oppressed by use of cruelty. And notice what happens. He not only observes the oppression, he'll observe the oppressed. Look what he says. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. What a tough menu item, right? (laughs) Uh, Chapter four, verse one. I walked out, he comes back to the table. He says, hey, I'm back. And I want to tell you, I looked at oppression and I looked at the tears of the oppressed. And notice what he says. And they had no comforter. So these abused, cruelly treated people have no one to protect them, no one to come alongside them, no one to come and uh, uh, comfort them in their, their, their hardship. And why is that? Because look, on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they had no comforter. It's the second time we see Solomon observing the hopeless situation of these people who are being oppressed. And so Solomon comes back and he says, let me tell you something about life, right? There are people in power who abuse that power to subjugate others by use of cruelty. And the weak people have no hope and nobody to rescue them, nobody to come and help them because the power of those oppressing them is so great, nobody can stand against them. And unfortunately, that is the reality of life under the sun. There, and, and you're no stranger to this. Leadership and dominion is not always given to those who wield it properly, right? Uh, think about any situation in our modern society and structure, right? I wish that there was a, a morality test to hold the office of president. I wish there was a morality test and a, and a character test to be the governor of California. But oftentimes what happens is the people in authority who have all the power do not have the character or the heart to wield that power properly. Uh, the Bible says it this way in, in Proverbs 29. And again, I don't know who wrote Proverbs 29. It might have been Solomon. But he says, this is what Proverbs 29.2 says. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Let me say this. Authority is not a bad thing. God ordained authority. And ladies, let me say this. If you have a husband who is righteous and he is an authority and he should be an authority in your life, you ought to rejoice in that. There are good authorities, right? There are good police officers and there are good politicians. Um, there are good, there are good people who have authority that wield authority and wield it properly. And when that happens, you know what the Bible says? Yeah, that's a time to rejoice. You ought to rejoice, young people, teenagers. If you've got a mom and dad who love Jesus, 
right? Because there are plenty of people who grew up in a home where mom and dad did not love Jesus. In fact, they were opposed to Jesus. And what a blessing it is to have a ruler because we're all going to have rulers. It's just how God designed authority and structure. There's always going to be somebody over us. We as a nation are always going to have a king. We call him president. But when Israel got a king, they were like, oh no, can we, can we give him back? And God was like, nope, you got a king. And Israel was going to have a king until they were conquered, right? But whether that king was good or not determined whether or not their heart would rejoice or their heart would mourn. Again, God ordained authority. Uh, It's a blessing uh, to have authority uh, over us. It's not a universally bad thing. And and I only address this because we unfortunately live in a society that treats authority as though it is evil. Because there are evil people who hold authority, they treat authority as if it's evil. Police officers can't pull me over. Judges can't condemn me. No law applies to me. Speak truth to power. Yeah, sometimes that needs to happen, but sometimes power is supposed to have authority because God ordained that. God ordains authority in our life. And so we ought not think, well, because someone has authority, they must be evil. No, someone has authority can be evil and they can wield it incorrectly. And that's why I, I point your eyes to Proverbs 29 too. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. And here in our text, Solomon is observing, even as king in his own country, that wicked men are ruling and his heart is breaking because of it. Now you would hope, okay, let me say this. The next verse is not commensurate to what our understanding of verse one is, right? Verse one, he's like, man, there's some really bad things happening. Some really bad people oppressing some people who have no power and no authority to get out of it. They've got no comforter. And man, those, those are bad dudes. But then look at verse number two. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Uh, Here's what Solomon said. It's better to be dead than to live under that kind of oppressive regime. Now, that's, that's not exclusively Solomon's perspective. Think of Patrick Henry during the Revolutionary War. Give me liberty or give me... I would have said tacos, but death is the right one there. Give me liberty or give me death, right? It's better to die than to live under oppression. Um, well, if this life is the only reality, then yeah, you'd be better off not existing than existing under, under oppression. But let me remind you of what Paul said to the enslaved people in the book of Ephesians. I want you to see how, not, again, they're not, they're, not in, they're not a contradiction. There's no contradictions in the Bible. But you are going to find tension between Paul's perspective with the gospel and Solomon's perspective far from God. He says, if you're a slave, you might as well just die. You'd be better off. In fact, in the next verse, he's going to say, not only should you have died, you should never have been born. That's what he's going to say. It's heavy. But Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6, 5. Servants, slaves, be obedient unto them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So under the sun, Solomon says, oh no, man, if all I'm going to be is a slave forever, just it'd be better not to have been. Solomon, or Paul over here through the lens of Jesus says, well, listen, yes, if you're a slave, again, that's, God's not for that, especially in the New Testament time. Um, he says, hey, serve him like you're serving Jesus, knowing that life under the sun's not all you get. 
God will reward them in heaven who serve faithfully. And so here's the, 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 the giant paradigm shift. Uh, Solomon says it'd be better to be dead if you're a slave. Paul says it'd be better to be alive if you were a slave because you can bring glory to God. You can serve Jesus and God's going to take care of it. He's going to settle the issue. He's going to even the score when you die and you go to heaven. Now, again, these verses don't contradict each other in a normal sense, but Solomon is showing what, what life is like away from God. He doesn't get to breathe the air of heaven. He's not thinking of life under Jesus. He's thinking of life right here and right now, and it'd be better just to be gone. But Paul says it very differently. It'd be better for you to have an example to, to serve and to show the Lord Je- to show the Lord Jesus to lost people, and Jesus will take care of it in the long run. But again, back to chapter number four. Look at verse three. He says, Yea, it is better. Mm-mm. Yea, better is he, forgive me, than both they. Now, we don't know who he is just yet. It's coming. It's in the same verse. It's not the dead person. It's, it's coming. He says, yea, better is he than, than both they, the oppressed and the oppressor, which hath not yet been. So the one who has not yet been is better than the oppressor and the oppressed. He says, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. He says, when I look at life, I picked this side for Solomon. So when I look at life and I see how awful the heart of man is, it would be better not to have been born. It would have better to have never been than to see the capability of the wickedness of man. So again, sitting across from us at the table this evening is a man who once knew the closeness of a relationship with God. This is the man, the man who built the magnificent temple. He was there when the cloud of God descended on this place and the, the music was played by the Levites. He had lived a majority, I think, of his life as king, enjoying the goodness of God. And now he is diseased in the deepest parts of his being. He's an idolater, a whoremonger, a womanizer. He has built the temple for Molech. Let me remind you, Molech is the place or the God you would sacrifice your newborn children to. Solomon built that temple. Yes, he built the temple of God, but he also built the temple of Molech and along with many other strange gods and given his wives their opportunity to worship them. And he returns to this table with this, this awful, rotten, poison observation that life is so terrible, you would be better dead or you'd be even better. Better than both of them are the ones who never were. Now again, stop and put yourself in his shoes because there's some truth to his perspective, not our perspective, but to his perspective, he has seen great wickedness. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that Solomon ever sacrificed in the altar of Molech, but he, he, he built it. So Solomon has probably seen children, the children of Israel, the babies of God's people, sacrificed on an altar and passed through the fire. Solomon may have some of these memories, some of these atrocities in his own mind, uh, brokenness and depravity of his own life. And he's at the point where he says, listen, I'd I'd rather be dead. In fact, I'd rather have never walked the planet than to have seen the capability of, of, of wickedness. So is that true? I mean, yes, but, but that's not us. We get to breathe deeply of heaven's air. Uh, but, but God included this book. God canonized this book and inspired this book so that you and I could have a front row, well-articulated view of what life is like apart from God. That when you see the depravity and the wickedness of life, when you're away from God and there's no perspective of life under that sun, but we're living under this sun, when we're just living here, oh man, it just it's so bad, can I escape? But again, that's not the perspective of a Christian. That's not our reality. We know that it's not better to have not been born. Even if we lived our entire lives, as Paul said, as a slave, but to know him, 
and to see him someday and to spend eternity in his presence. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, which will afterwards yield an exceeding weight of eternal glory. What a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ so that we might live in the eternal presence of God. No one who thinks of heaven has that perspective. It would be better to never have been, never have been. To never have ever known God? To never spend eternity? To never be able to see the angels and see Jesus? No one with a perspective of heaven would ever say that. But people under the sun, that's a, that's a reasonable conclusion. That when you watch the depravity of man and see the abuse and the, the horrid actions of leadership or the horrid actions of family members or the horrid actions and capability of humanity as a whole, you might get to the place where you say, it, I, I, I envy the people who never were. But again, here's what he said. This is what's different for us. We have a comforter. You remember what he said twice? And in verse one, and they have no comforter. They're oppressed and they have no comforter. And that's what's so beautiful about you and I. We can be the slave. We can be under bondage, but we have a comforter. It's literally one of the titles given, paraclete, to the Holy Spirit. He is there, the one who comes alongside. Even if nothing changes, he is present. That's why Paul and Silas could sing in the jailhouse with their back stripped uh, and beaten. That's why they could have that joy in the midst of their hardship. Whereas Solomon's over here saying, I just wish I was dead. Now, I will say, just to be real, and I didn't really intend on speaking about suicide, but the Bible does talk about how Paul despaired even of life. There's... There's no escaping the curse. There are hard, hard, hard situations. Um, And you may come to that place. And if that's where you're at or ever go there, please call a friend, call me. I'd love to counsel you through that because here's the difference. I get it over there, but we have a comforter. We have someone who walks with us, who knows us, who loves us, who will be there and has never forsaken and never left us. And so we may get to that place where Solomon's like, it had just been better if I never was here. In a million years in heaven, nobody will think that. We will be so grateful he created us, breathed life into us, so that we could even for, for our whole life, if all we ever did was suffer, but for a million years we spent time in the presence and glory of God, we will all rejoice that God created us. And Solomon's like, I wish I never was. What a different perspective. So let's look at verse uh, four, uh, 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 rather back to chapter number four, verse number four, let's look at it now. He said again, so now he's going to tell us something else he noticed back at the table. I considered all travail, all labor, all work, uh, and every right work. So another thing he notices, he, he starts to look around at people who were trying to do it right. Someone was trying to do it well. And when he says every right work, he's not talking about righteous work. He's talking about doing something well, doing something in an excellent manner. And so at first he says, oh, it's so awful to live because men in authority, they, they oppress. And then he says, and I saw another thing. There's men who are trying to do it right. They're trying to succeed. They're trying to, trying to do life well, essentially. Um, uh, and, and, and notice what that person gets in the rest of the verse. The one who does right, does it honestly, is proficient. They can become successful. Notice what they get. That for this, a man, the one who did it right, is envied of his neighbor. He says, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So here's what he said. Verses one through three, wicked people doing it wrong. Nobody can stop them. Hey, but in verse four, I've seen people try to do it right. I've seen people try to be excellent in their job. I've seen people try to do work the right way. And you know what they get? They get despised and envied by their neighbor. They're doing it right. They're, they're, they're walking the right path. They're not cutting corners. They're excelling and exceeding in their career. And you know what they get for all of that? 
The world doesn't approve someone who wins doing it right. They become envious of them. They become, oh, okay, so you became wealthy? Well, I know why that is. You're an evil capitalist. We live in that world today where someone does it right, someone raises kids right, someone keeps their marriage uh, 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 monogamous, someone keeps their marriage faithful and sin out of it. The, the world looks at it and they say, oh yeah, it must be nice. You probably did something, right? You probably did something wrong, right? And there's just envy. There's not, a, there's not approval. There's not applause. And again, it's such a fake system. The world says, oh yeah, excel. Well, if you excel, you're the enemy in a lot of cases. You, you rise above the coworkers, right? I'm not in a union, but I've heard all the union jokes, right? Where everybody's standing around, they're upset at the one guy who's working hard, like, hey, you're gonna make us look bad, right? That, that's what Solomon's observing. The guy who's trying to do it the way it's supposed to be done, he doesn't get applauded, he gets envied. He gets despised by those around him. And so here's what, here's what Solomon says. This is his observation. The whole system's broken. You can't even win if you win. Think about that. You've heard like you can't win for losing. Well, Solomon just said, I, ob- I observed all travail and the guy who's working right, he wins, but he doesn't win. He's somehow the villain of the story because he succeeded. You can't win in this broken system. And to that, I would say, amen. Life under the sun, there is no winning. Even if you win, you lose. If you cut corners and you're cheap and you lie and you connive, you might get the approval of men. But if you do it right and you try to live honest and you try to build a business and you try to take care of a family and you try to, you know, you're not trying to keep up with the Jones, you're just trying to do it right. What are you going to end up with? People are going to look at you and say, oh man, you did it good. Good job. No, they're going to envy you. They're going to be upset that you got something that they didn't get. And Solomon says the whole system's broken. You can't win in this system. And, and we're going to see this application in a second and a verse from now. But I, let me speak to this. That's why God's people don't participate in this system to win the prizes of the world system, right? You think about when you go to an arcade, right? You get like that points card and you got to get the prizes that they have. And it's never worth, you know, like your kids think it's awesome. They're like, look, I got a stuffed animal. It's like, I'm out $75 for that stuffed animal. That's Solomon's observation of the world system. He's like, you could do it all right. And the prize is terrible, which is why God's people, we don't go to work for the approval of men. We don't do the work right so that people notice us. Because even if we do it right, they're going to envy us. They're going to be upset about it. They're going, to be, they're going to find some reason that you didn't deserve what you got, which is why God's people, again, he's not advocating for not working. He's not advocating for not excelling or doing well. In fact, in the coming verses, he's going to show us the contrast of that. What I think we ought to take away from this is that we run this race not for anything we get under the sun, but for what we get in our rewards in heaven and eternity. So let's keep reading and you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 5. And this is a contrast, right? So on one hand, in verse four, there's the guy that's doing it right. And then in verse five, it seems like a foolish reaction to the the wise man who did it right, got envied. So the fool folded his hands together. So he's unwilling to work. He's not gonna excel. He's not gonna try hard things. And again, whether that's just because he's lazy or because he saw the guy who did it right and got chewed apart, he says, I'm gonna fold my hands. I'm not gonna work. But notice what comes of him. And eateth his own flesh. You can't win for losing. You can't win for winning. You do it right, you can't win. You do it wrong, you can't win. And again, I think the big takeaway is don't refuse to play the game. I don't think that's the big takeaway. Because God very clearly tells us that a man should provide for his own. The Bible very clearly tells us that God's requirement given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith is labor. 
God ordained it in the garden, right? And again, the fall took everything and perverted it, right? It took our purpose and our image bearing and our, our dominion and it perverted it. Well, work was a gift before the fall as well. We're supposed to work and supposed to care for our family. So I don't think Solomon, the takeaway from Solomon should be, well, let's just refuse to play the game because that's what the fool did. What we ought to refuse to do is to play for the trinket at the end of the games, right? That, that, that tiny little stuffed animal, like, I'm gonna build something great so that people recognize me man, they're going to envy you. They're going to be upset about it. You're going to, well, you got that position. You must've done something shady to get it, right? We don't play the game for the prizes. We obey our father and he told us to work and he told us to, to do well and he told us to use it for his glory. And, and we don't care what we get to, what trinkets we get at the end of the game. You know, We're thinking of our rewards in heaven. And again, we talked about so many times in this particular book that life under the sun when lived for Jesus can have eternal purpose. A, a nine to five for Jesus has eternal value. Right? A nine to five for the trinket and the praise of your boss, there's no eternal value in that. But a nine to five and, and grinding it out and trying to advance and take care of your family and help the, the, the kingdom of Christ, that all has eternal value. But we don't play that game for the trinkets. We don't play that game so that we have more, or so that we have you know, the approval or praise of men. Uh, that's not how it works. But notice verse number six. We're going to shift into our final thought. And it is a powerful reality about work and labor and our, our understanding of how the economy of God works. Look at it. He says, better is a handful with quietness. That means peace, unity. Better is a handful, one handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Ooh, that might could be a theme for your year. Here's what Solomon, the wisest man, from the sickest soul says this, life is better with one hand full and peace than it is with both hands full and trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. That's the same author. Solomon says it'd be better to eat nothing but lettuce. How many of you men like lettuce? No, okay. I always say that's what food eats, right? I'm eating my salad because the cow ate the salad. So that, that'll help you later on. But he says it's better to eat salad with a family that loves each other. And that's not because it's like a vegan diet. It's because you couldn't afford meat, right? It'd be better to eat nothing but herbs that you could pull out of the ground and eat it with a family that loves each other than to have this massive, stalled, beautifully prepared ox and everybody around the table hates each other. So let's, get, let's bring this uncomfortably to our lives. Maybe for you this year, you would be better off with less money, but more family time. I can say this for sure. I don't know. That might not be the case. God may be prospering you. There's nothing wrong with having money so long as you use it correctly and take care of your family and so forth. But maybe for you, this year, you need to make that decision. Hey, babe, we're going to have one hand full and quietness in our family than having both hands full and vexation and travail of our spirit. Maybe we should forego some luxuries this year to have a happy marriage. No, no, if I had more, she'd be happy. Ooh, how's that going so far? <laughs> I will, and, and I don't mean to be unkind, but if that's your philosophy, I can almost promise you she's not happy because you're chasing things God never put you on the earth to chase. God, listen, and I'll say this. I think I have it in my notes a little bit later on, but when, when God looked at Adam and saw there was something missing, he didn't put paper money in his hand. We weren't made for money. He put a wife in his hands. He made him a family. We were made for relationships, not stuff. And Solomon, even in the sickest of his soul, says, yeah, 
One hand full with peace is better than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Listen, it is more wise to develop unity and wholeness in your family than it is to have more things than your hands can possibly carry and hold. I was recently speaking to a younger father in our church about just this, this idea of trying to, be, trying to be men and trying to be fathers for our kids and trying to be engaged in their lives. And um, he was using the illustration. He said, you know, when I grew up, I had a dad. He was there. He loved me. And, uh, you know, I knew he did, but he, he was never around to teach me things. He never, he never took time to show me how to do this. He never took time to show me how to do that. And he wasn't being dishonorable to his dad. And I, and, and I asked him this question I want to ask you. I said, so, so you, did you know when you were eight, how much, do you remember when you were eight, how much money your parents had in the bank? No. Do you remember your dad not being there? Oh, yeah. Think about that. Your kids will never remember in 2024 how much money you had in the bank. They will remember you not being present. That's really important. And again, I'm all for excelling. I'm all for vacation. I'm all for surplus. God is for that. There's a lot of times God wants to prosper you, just like God wants you to be healthy. But there's also times where God's going to bring you to suffering. There's also going to be times where God, there's seasons, right? And that was chapter three. Um, But one thing that's non-negotiable is that it would be better. Listen, if you can have both hands full and quietness, woo, what a blessing. But if having both hands full costs you your family peace, have one hand full. You'll be far better for it. so let's continue on again. If you're like, oh, I don't like that idea. Well, tune out for the rest of the chapter because Solomon's going to lean into it. Look what he says. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone. and There is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor? Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Now that is such a deep verse, we're going to have to go back and unpack that kind of line by line. There's a lot there. But here's what Solomon said. I saw a man who was alone. A lot of times in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find like character studies. He's going to be like, hey, I observed this guy, right? At the very beginning, he says, I observed the oppressor and he had power and he had no heart for people. And then I observed the oppressed. It's almost always a character study as he's teaching us these things. Well, he's about to embark on a character study. And I'm going to give you my, inc- my understanding or at least my observation of it. I think he's talking about himself. You'll see, I think, some proofs of why I think that is. But here's what he says. Well, let's start back in verse number seven and we'll walk through. He says, then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there's not a second. There's nobody by him. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Uh, But notice what he gave himself to. He's got nobody around him. He says, yet is there no end of all his labor. So he's got nobody to be around him. And you're gonna see why that's a problem in a minute. But then he says, but even with nobody to provide for and nobody to give to, he gave himself, there is yet no, yet is there no end of all of his labor. He's working like a dog. He just had a job, ceaseless, never ending work. And notice the condition of his heart. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. And we live in a world right now, it's so, so frustrating. And it probably existed before I was old enough to understand it. But there's a lot of the like, Oh, be, you know, don't have children forever. It's better if you don't have kids. Oh, you have how many kids? Oh, that's so bad. Uh, no, God is for having families, okay? That's one of the very first things God commanded in the Bible, right? Be fruitful and multiply, have families. Um, this man, in Solomon's observation, said, he looks at him, he says, he's got nobody around him. He's got nobody there, and yet he's still giving himself to work. But even work is not satisfying him. Notice again, keep reading in, uh, uh, in verse number eight. He says, neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? 
Listen, a man can go and grind out an uncomfortable, awful day at the office. You know why? He's bereaving himself of good. Why? Because he loves his family. But you've got this guy who's given himself to riches and he's bereaving his soul, his soul of good. And he looks and he's like, why am I doing this? I got all this money, but money's not making me happy. Why am, I, why am I giving up my life and waking up to, to go to work, to come home, to go to sleep, to wake up, to go to work, to come home and repeat it all over again? He says, this also is vanity, yea, a sore travail. It's a terrible job. So listen, the question when it comes to the value of our work is not, listen, it's going to be a little bit ethereal, so, so try to, I'm going to try to make it concrete for us. The question is not, how much do I get? for what I'm bereaved of. I lose my day, I lose my hours, I lose my rest and my peace to go to work. But it's not for what. The question is, for who? You and I were put on the planet, like I said, for relationships, not for what, but for who? And like I said, a man can go and a woman can go and grind out some labor and do some hard things and bust his knuckles or write some code and bereave himself of his youth and his strength and the majority of the hours of his day even, for money? Well, that, that is just, that's just paper. But for people, it becomes extremely difficult. And sometimes we even lose that clear view of, uh, of things ourselves. We start out, right, uh, uh, you know, not chasing money, right? Uh, let's just kind of put it in an idyllic, you know, situation. You got a young husband and he's married and, man, he's trying to build a career and he wants to take care of his family. And, man, he starts growing and he starts moving up the ladder and it's awesome. And, man, they're starting to offer promotions and, you know, extra hours. And now you got to take a business trip. And, and then you start feeling that tension. It's like, oh, but I got a, I got a kid now and I got two kids. And you know what I'm going to do? And we didn't start out chasing money. But now family's getting in the way, so what do we do? Oh, I just, we move into the side for just a little while, and we start, we keep chasing, but we start chasing the what, and we lose the who. And you get to the end of your life, like Solomon observes this man, and, and he's got nobody. Doesn't mean he never had a kid, doesn't mean he didn't have a brother, but nobody's around him. And he's bereaved himself of all of his good, and he's got no one to share it with. He's got this table. In fact, if you remember the sermon I preached out of this passage, we, had, we stole Brother Hunter's dining room table, and I used that table to preach this passage. He's got a table full of stuff, but nobody around it. And he's got an empty soul. Let's keep reading. And again, keep looking for why, why, did, why is Pastor crazy thinking that he's talking about himself? Keep reading. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward of the, for their labor. So he says, why is it better to have people around the table with you? Because when the reward comes for all your work, there's two people to enjoy it. It's a blessing. I don't understand these people. Like, I'm going to go on vacation by myself. What do you do when you get that, like, perfect cup of coffee? You're like, this is so good. Hey, stranger, you want to try my coffee? Like, I share that coffee with my wife. I want to share that experience with my kids. I don't want to just, like, view Zion National Park by myself and then be like, that was cool. You want to have that with somebody. Two are better than one because there's a reward for what you did. There's a joy. Love is beautiful when shared. Now, again, we live in such a hollow culture where I don't need family. I got Instagram. I'll just post it on Instagram. I'll get my likes and my, ah, that's not what God designed for us, right? There's dopamine in, in both of those equations, but it's supposed to be with your family. Look at verse number 10. And there's another reason that it matters. You have people around you. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. Boy, that, that verse was true to me this week, right? Struggling with the back pain. Like, I'm like, I cannot fall in the back bedroom by myself. Nobody's going to be there to save me, right? I walked around all Monday with a chair, just like this. 
right? Because I couldn't fall with nobody around, right? For he hath not another to help him up. So listen, people over things because the time of celebration. You'd rather have people to celebrate than things to celebrate with. Your flat screen TV does not care that you saw something beautiful or that you had a great cup of coffee or you had a good night's sleep or, man, you got this blessing on the way to work and, man, God did this thing for you you didn't expect. You're going to go home and share that with your, your PlayStation? No, man, a family. But it's also better, two are better than one, because in the seasons of hardship and defeat, have somebody there. Look, keep reading. He says in verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Uh, again, that's, that's not sexual in nature. It's just the reality that like, if there's somebody else there, that other person produces heat and you produce heat. And now you guys have, there's, there's comfort there because someone's there. It's like going home to an empty house. Where's the warmth? Man, when somebody's there, they may feel cold when you're gone and you may feel cold when you're at work. But man, when you come together, when two lie together, there's heat. What a joy to share life with people. But again, you've got Solomon sitting at an empty table with a bunch of stuff. We were made for relationships, not hands full of paper. Look at verse 12, and we're moving on. We're almost to the end of the chapter. It's going to get, get heavy before we finish, though. Um, look at verse 12. He says, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's important to have godly relationships around us because when we fall or when we succeed, when, when it's cold or when it's, you know, you, you want some fellowship. Now, how, how does this relate, practically speaking? Well, number one, you're, you were created for a relationship with God. That relationship should not be severed. We are in the boat with the life critic, unhappy, better than ever been born guy because he has severed his relationship with God. And in severing his relationship with God, every other relationship becomes less and less meaningful. So first and foremost, protect your relationship with Jesus. Number two, protect your relationship with the single most important human being on the planet, your spouse. God gave you to that person and gave that person to you to be heirs together of the grace of life, your children. And then I would say your church family. I think extended family lands in there somewhere, but for those of you who are saved and have lost, lost extended family, you understand you got more in common with your church family. You're part of the bride of Christ. Doesn't mean you should neglect them or reject them. There are times maybe distance is necessary, right? We, we saw that in chapter three, but your church family, that's an important relationship. Satan understands how easy it is to destroy someone when they're severed from these vital relationships, okay? Now, the next line is probably my favorite in the whole book. And I might've even already said that like last week. I say it a lot, but I love verse number 13. And this is the primary reason and his explanation of the coming verses is why I think Solomon is character studying himself. He says, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king will no more be admonished. So listen, I, like I said, I truly believe Solomon for the rest of the chapter is going to be talking about himself. He's bereaved himself of his family. His bed is empty from meaningful warmth. There, and then what he says is, it's better to be a poor and wise child. Now, I think he's talking about David there. Again, just my observation. I'll show you why in just a second. Really, at the end of the verse, it, it, it really seems clear, at least to me. But one of the things he says is, it's better to be a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who nobody can correct. You think about, think about David. David had Samuel to correct him. He had Nathan to point his finger at him. But Solomon, who does he got? His dad's not there to help him. There's nobody there that we know of that would come and confront Solomon about his sin. And he has become, in his own admission, an old and foolish king. But who was the poor and wise child? Think about David. That young shepherd boy singing praises and writing psalms. His father, a broke little boy, no money, 
He's sending cheese to his brothers, but he is wise. And Solomon looks at this poor and wise child in contrast to this old and foolish king. And again, uh, uh, it, he, and, he, and, he, and he says, man, it's, it's better to be poor and broke and wise. And let's remind ourselves of a big takeaway from this book. If anybody could have won, it was Solomon. If anybody could have succeeded in filling the gap or making themselves happy apart from God, it was Solomon. Solomon is at the end of his life with nobody to correct him, all by himself. He's got a table full of stuff, but an empty heart and an empty, empty bed. There's no warmth. There's nobody there to pick him up when he falls. There's nobody there to celebrate the goodness of God with. He's essentially all alone. Uh, and right now he envies his deceased father, who was a poor and wise child. Keep reading. And again, here's where I think it becomes clear. He says, for out of prison, he, the poor and wise child, cometh to reign. So out of nowhere, out of obscurity, God can bring a poor and wise child to become the king. Well, who does that describe? David. He says, for out of prison, he cometh to reign. Now a contrast, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. So again, I, I think pretty clearly he's talking about David. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished because that poor and wise child can come out of prison and become the king. But then the one born after him, born into wealth, born into his kingdom, becomes poor. That's Solomon. Solomon, who was born with all of it, had the kingdom, had the power, becomes poor in his own soul. And he said, uh, Solomon says, God prospered my daddy who was poor and made him rich. And then there was me. I was rich and I became poor. It'd be better to be a wise, broke kid than an old and foolish king who has nobody there with him to correct him or to help him. Look at verse 15. And we're coming in for a landing. He said, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. Here's what he says. Solomon said, let me tell you what I've learned about the son being born to the king who stands up in his father's stead. So he says, I'm, I'm just observing about life that there are those who, who are kings and then their son comes to fruition. Let's hear what he says about himself. He says, there is no end of all people. That cycle of life is going to continue. There's going to be a king and he's going to die and someone's going to come after him. Even all of them that have been before him. So this has happened before us. There's a, there's a father and he dies. There's a son, there's a father. Then he dies and then the son. But notice what he says. Let's start over in verse 16. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before him. They also that come after, come after this poor and wise child, shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So here's the picture he paints. You got an old and wise, old and, uh, or rather young and wise child or a poor and wise child who God takes out of prison and makes him a king. And he was poor, but then he became rich. But in his house is born someone who will come up, a second son who will stand in the stead of his father. And this guy becomes poor. And here's what he says. And nobody likes him. Nobody's pleased with him. Look at it again at the very end. They also that come after that son shall not rejoice in him. There'll be no rejoicing over the next guy that comes. And listen, this is, this is an inescapable reality under the sun that we live in a system where maybe someday we might have a good king, but the guy that takes over for him, that's not a good king. And then maybe that guy's good, and then, oh man, that guy's gonna be terrible. We're not gonna want the next guy. We're not gonna rejoice in the next guy. We might have a good president in the next term, but we... We're not going to have a good one the next one. And Solomon is saying this about this reality. It's the very last phrase of the whole, of the whole chapter. 
Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So here's our final takeaway, and it's not obscure. It certainly ties in, but here's what he says. Hoping in a king, it's just an empty hope. It's vanity and vexation of spirit. What he's telling us is for ages, kings have died, their sons have taken, and we've not been pleased with them. And then they become king, and and their son comes, and and we're not pleased with them. And here's what Solomon kind of projects for us. It's always going to be that way. David, the poor and wise child, brought into the kingdom, and he became rich, and then his son messed it up, and Solomon's sons make it even worse. So nobody coming after is ever going to fix this. Except King Jesus, who does indeed come through this man's lineage. And yes, life under the sun says there's never going to be a king who we like. We're never going to be happy with him. Now, under the sun, that's true, because Jesus isn't going to be on the ballot in November. I wish he were, but unless he comes back, there won't be a ballot. So he's not going to be on the ballot anyway. But unless Jesus is on the ballot, we're not going to like who we get, right? So don't hope in, well, 2024, Donald Trump's coming back. Maybe he is. In some ways, that'd be great, but he's not Jesus. And no king are we ever going to be totally satisfied with. And Solomon kind of thinks that in perpetuity, but that's, that's just not true, Solomon. Because generations from now, a family from your lineage will come back to the hometown of David and a child will be born the angels will light the sky, and that child will grow up to save their, his people from their sins. So there is a king who came. Solomon, life under the sun, it'd be better to have died or to have never been. But you and I breathe of heaven's air, and this makes sense to us in a different perspective. Let's pray and we'll be out tonight.